Welcome to the Crosslands Church Podcast, our mission to help you experience the life with God you've been missing. And now, a message for you. Like many kids, when I was in school, I didn't like school. Didn't enjoy it. And uh, for some kids, the the best class, the reprieve from class is gym class. For me, I hated gym class. I I couldn't stand it. I remember being about uh, 14, I think, maybe 12, and, and the one thing I couldn't say, like gym class was bad enough. Sometimes it would be classes. I remember doing like baseball and, and one, time, one year we did golf and that, that was okay. But the one thing I hated was running. I couldn't stand running. And I hated those gym, gym classes where you show up for gym and the teacher says, today we're going to run. And we would just, he'd send us out. Here's your route, go run. And we'd run. Easiest job in the world, gym class teacher on running day, what's he even doing? Sitting there in his office while we're just running. For the whole class, we just run and, and, and run and run and run. You come back, you're hot and sweaty, and, and the people that run faster, they, they've been done for a long time. They're just chillaxing until the rest of us losers sort of show up at the end. When you play Little League Baseball or Little League Soccer, when you're done the game, you're rewarded with a Mr. Freezy. We were rewarded with math class. It's awful, I couldn't stand it. It's like we're just running in a big circle. And, we're doing our series on justice, and sometimes I wonder if when we pursue justice, it feels like we're just running in a big circle. We're just running, running, trying to accomplish things, and things in some ways don't seem to be getting better. How do we get to justice? The claim of this series is that Jesus offers better tools than our culture does to achieve justice, to aim for justice, to get justice. What we've done in our culture, and one reason why we... One of the reasons we, we are struggling with this is because we've, we've thrown out God. We've thrown out the traditions that keep God at the center of meaning and place God as the basis of justice. I don't know if we'll have time today, but uh, if you have a question or comment, put it on the YouTube chat, uh, text me if you have, have my phone number, and if we have time, we'll deal with it. If, I have, um, if we don't, I might take those questions and, and build it into a future message so that we can have sort of an ongoing conversation about this. I, I want you to be part of the conversation because these are really, really tough issues. There's, there's an ancient legend. It comes out of Greek culture, and it's the legend of an ancient king called Sisyphus. And Sisyphus had done something to aggravate the gods, and so he was punished, and his punishment was, was this. He had to push or carry a large rock up a massive hill. And when he got to the top, the rock would roll all the way back down again, and he had to go down and push that rock up again for eternity. This was his existence. This was, the, this was the punishment of the gods. Push up a rock. I remember when I was about 20, we had a, a guy in our church, the, the church in which I grew up, and he had a swimming pool. And he would allow the youth group to use the swimming pool regularly. And so when he needed work done on the pool, and he was going to be doing some, you know, changing all the paving stones or something like that, he asked for help from people in the youth group. Now, it wasn't... I wasn't a youth member at this point, but I was a youth leader. And I I didn't have a heavy work schedule. I was sort of working sort of odd jobs. And I thought, well, I could help, I guess. So I went over, and I think there was another guy that helped too. And uh, I remember one day I was working alone. And he said, we have this this big pile of gravel here on my driveway. And that gravel's got to get down to the pool, which was sort of downhill 100 feet or 200 feet or something like that. And so I shovel all the gravel in, put it in the wheelbarrow, sort of walk it down, try to keep it from falling over, because wheelbarrows are sometimes tricky like that. 
multiple trips and, and, and the pile's getting smaller at the top of the hill and the pile's getting bigger at the bottom of the hill. I'd been doing this for maybe an hour, an hour or two. And he came down to look at the work and he said, uh, you know what, I think this is premature. I think we need all the gravel back up to the top of the hill. Okay, so I get a shovel. I'm starting to shovel the gravel back in the wheelbarrow, taking it now uphill, which is even trickier. You're, you're carrying the wheelbarrow uphill. And, and I, had, I had gotten the, the, the pile to about half. And he came out and said, no, we actually need all the gravel at the bottom of the hill. So I started moving the gravel to the bottom of the hill again. I, I kind of felt like Sisyphus, pushing that rock up a hill, except for one big difference. Here's the big difference. The guy that owned the pool had a daughter. Her name was Michelle. So I wasn't just moving rocks. I was trying to impress the girl that lived there. There was a purpose to it. There was a meaning to it. We live in a culture where, see, the, the idea of carrying weight is, is not just a, it's not just a story. It's a metaphor. It's, it's a symbol. When we say we're, we're dealing with strong emotional problems, we're carrying a burden. We work our jobs, many times we carry our burden. Now, there are many of us today that don't carry physical burdens anymore. And there's, there's a certain sense where we were designed for that. So some of us pay money to go to a gym to pick up weights and put them down again. We pick it up and we put it down. We pick it up and we put it down. And the only thing it accomplishes is the health of our physical body. We're designed, to some extent, to carry weight. There's got to be a meaning. There's got to be a purpose to it. So here we are in the 21st century, and over the past 100, 150 years in the Western culture, we've thrown out the idea of God being at the center of meaning and at the basis of justice. And our, our thinkers have tried to sort this out. How do we do this? How do we, how do we get to justice if God doesn't exist? One of our thinkers in the 20th century, his name was Albert Camus, and uh, he wrote a book about Sisyphus, a guy carrying rocks up a hill. The book was called The Myth of Sisyphus. It actually was. He wrote it in 1942. It was published in 1942. So it came out halfway through World War II. The world is involved in this, this bitter, massive war, the second major war in which war was industrialized. And instead of people being killed by the hundreds and the thousands, they were now being killed by the tens and hundreds of thousands in all kinds of brutal, unimaginable, unimaginable ways that today, you know, if you're not interested in history, you might have no idea the horrors that people went through. And then he puts out this book called The Myth of Sisyphus. He starts the book with this sentence. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. That's how he starts the book. Where is meaning in life? Because if there's no meaning, then the only question we really face is that of suicide. And so he goes through an argument uh, discussing what meaning is, and at the risk of oversimplifying his argument, because he ends up talking about death making life absurd. Because of death, life is absurd. He's not saying it's meaningless, he's saying it's absurd. He says it's the struggle of life itself that brings meaning. And he finishes the book, I gave you the first sentence, here's the last sentence of the book. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. One must imagine Sisyphus, happy. I recently read a book by a man named Viktor Frankl, and uh, he was, uh, he survived a concentration camp in World War II 
on average, one in 28 survived those camps. And he was a psychologist, psychiatrist. I don't think he would have called himself that um, before the war. And he went through this experience with his eyes open, asking the question, what is going on here? He had already been investigating the question, what gives life meaning? And after the war, he described some of experiences in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. The first half of the book that was written not too long after the war talks about some of the horrifying, soul-crushing, dehumanizing experiences that every one of those people went through. And one in 28 survived. And one of the things that they went through was they had to do work to accomplish the purposes of the Nazis, um, but sometimes there was no specific work to accomplish something. And so they would get these inmates of the concentration camp to move a pile of rocks from here to there for half a day. And at the, at, when that was done, they would get those inmates to move that same pile of rocks from there back to here. And that's when people gave up the will to live because there was no purpose, there was no meaning in their suffering. And if we take the myth of Sisyphus, not the original legend, but that book by Albert Camus, if we take that seriously, the response might be, we must imagine them happy. Seems to me there's a problem there. It seems like the sick joke of a tormentor, of the oppressor. Now, Viktor Frankl concluded that there were three things that give us meaning in life, and I know we're not talking about justice yet, but we will. He says, we find meaning in three things. One is to accomplish something, to do a deed. We find meaning in that. The second thing is in our experiences with, uh, well, in our experiences and our encounters with people. We find meaning in that. And then through his experience in these concentration camps, he came to the conclusion that we also find meaning in the face of a hopeless fate when we refuse to be dehumanized. That's sort of my summary of what he says. We refuse to be dehumanized. We maintain our humanity in the face of suffering. He doesn't say dignity because there's very little dignity in suffering. We maintain our humanity. We rise above, we grow beyond ourselves, and by doing so, we become changed. And he says there's meaning in suffering, but you know what there isn't? Justice. There's no justice in that. This past week, uh, I was visiting with my mother and she brought an old atlas to my house. It was Dutch. It was from Holland. And it was, it was so old, it was no longer geography, it was history. Because there were countries in there that didn't, they no longer exist. And uh, so she brought it over. I didn't know why she brought it over. And she went to the back of it. And she, there, were, there, there was a page that had pictures of people of different ethnicities from different part of the, parts of the world. And she pointed out one. It was a, it was a First Nations chief. And he was old, and his face was craggy, and um, it was hard to tell whether the face had defiant pride or was, was just worn out. And she said, look at that picture. If you, if you remove the feathered headdress, I mean, his skin was dark. He was a First Nations person. And, and she said, if you remove the headdress, that's exactly like what my father looked like when he returned from the concentration camp. So he survived, 1 in 28. 
but the consequences last way beyond his experience. In fact, the consequences can last for generations. The cruelty and the inhumanity that we inflict upon one another, they're not over when they're over. They're perpetuated on and on and on. And we have a knack for creating hell on earth as human beings. The news came out again this week with a number of children in unmarked graves in residential schools that we know about more than doubled. And the stories are starting to come out. I mean, people knew this. First Nations people would share the stories amongst one another, and we were kind of ignorant to that, willfully or not. And the hell is perpetuated generation after generation. The children and the grandchildren continue to suffer. I was listening to a podcast this week, and there's, there's a guy, he puts out these podcasts. If you're really into history, it's a, it's a really good history one, because he puts out these, like, a series of five podcasts on elements of, most of them have to do with World War II, and each, each episode is five hours long. And I was listening to one, and, and, and you're talking about the war in the Pacific, and some of the stories, absolutely horrifying. I couldn't even begin to share the stories here without making the message R-rated. We'd have to have the children removed for the room because the stories are absolutely horrifying. We have a knack as human beings for creating hell on earth. And where's the justice? Are we just supposed to imagine somebody happy as they carry a rock up a hill? Those that are left behind, permanently marred physically or emotionally, and the consequences are passed down generation to generation. And as we in the West have thrown off the traditions that keep God at the center of meaning and at the basis of justice, we were looking for other options, and, and in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we started to look east, and we became enamored of, of Eastern religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, and, and, and the, the idea of karma and reincarnation. It seems appealing, because you can start over again. The question of justice, you could try again, you could try again, you could try again, but what we have missed in the West is there's a horrifying aspect to that, because karma says that whatever happens to you is what you deserve. Whatever happens to you is what you deserve. So if you find yourself in a concentration camp, you brought that on yourself. If not in this life, then in a past life. If you have a child that's born with a disability or infirmity, karma says that's from something they did in a past life. Reincarnation, a nice idea for us, because we don't truly understand it. And there's a reason why in India, the caste system has been perpetuated on and on and on. It's a completely unjust system. But you don't rock the boat because you might affect your future life. And so the just injustice remains unaddressed. The Buddha had a brilliant response to this. He recognized what this problem was. And he says the goal would be to escape from this cycle. And so the goal to escape from that cycle is to achieve nirvana. And again, I don't want to oversimplify and misrepresent Hinduism and Buddhism. I'm not an expert. But it seems to me he recommends that the solution is escape, which is the peace of nothingness. That's, nir not, that's nirvana. Nirvana is not bliss. It's nothingness. And so the best we can do is escape suffering, which is the basic element of life. We can escape that to nothingness. And so through Buddhism, you achieve peace. But not justice. There's no justice. There's no response or compensation for evil. There's no reward for righteousness, just an escape from suffering. So in this predicament we have, 
Because the world is evil all the way through, and we as human beings have a knack for creating hell on earth. What's the solution? Jesus offers a solution that we don't always like. That solution is God's judgment. When? Have you read the Psalms? When, Lord? I see evil all around me. When will you address it? And the solution to that is resurrection. We understand resurrection as, as followers of Jesus to mean I get to live forever in heaven. That's not what it is. Resurrection is the opportunity for God to judge everything and make things right. God will judge everything and make things right. The good judge. Normally in a message series in a church, we would start with Jesus' crucifixion, not resurrection. But the reality is before Jesus ever went to the cross, the people of their time anticipated resurrection because that's when God makes things right. It's the expectation that God will judge the guilty and bring about justice for the innocent and the righteous. It goes way back. Daniel 12 verse 2 in the Old Testament says, Many of these whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. That's late pre-Christian theology in the Old Testament. But here, you might think, okay, there's an evolution of Jewish thought, Hebrew thought, and that sort of comes to the end of it as we struggle with ideas of justice. One of the oldest books in the Old Testament is the book of Job. The book of Job says in Job 19, 25, 26, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. Even though evil has befallen me, even though suffering is my lot, I know that in the end, in the end, God will make things right. And then at the end of the New Testament, Revelation, Revelation 6, 9, 10 says this, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? The answer to them is soon, very soon. Just rest a little bit longer. God will judge one day. Some people say resurrection, that's not an answer. Doesn't happen. That's what the skeptic says. People don't rise from the dead at any time. There's talk today about the opportunity to maybe one day, at least in principle, transfer your consciousness before you die from your physical matter brain into a computer. I'm not saying that's possible or not, but many people who are atheists might believe that to be true. If it's true that we could do that maybe one day, at least in principle, how can God not hold our personalities? Each one of us, he's God. And at the end of time, bring us back to life. It's a, it's a, it's a comforting thought for the righteous and the innocent. It's not a comforting thought for the oppressor and the tormentor. There's a counterclaim, okay? I want you to listen to this quote. It's pretty good until the end. Religious suffering is, at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. I don't know if you recognize it, the last line is, it is the opium of the people, Karl Marx. And his accusation was that the church held over the common people the dream of eternity in heaven so that it could continue to oppress people on earth. That's the claim. 
Because we believe in heaven, we will continue to suffer injustice because the reward is after this life. And those who are on this earth would believe that the ones in charge would believe that isn't true and they're just leveraging the ignorance of all the common people. That's what Karl Marx is saying there. That's why he was anti-religion. The, the empty promise of the afterlife maintains the status quo. So those are in power, stay in power. Those not in power continue to suffer. Is that what resurrection is? Is that what it means? Here's a completely different take on that. This is from Tom Wright, New Testament historian and scholar. He says this in his book, Resurrection of the Son of God. And he's specifically talking about Jesus' bodily resurrection. He's not talking about our resurrection at the end of time. But this, it applies. And you'll see how. To imply that Jesus went to heaven when he died, or that he is now simply a spiritual presence, and is supposed that such ideas exhaust the referential meaning of Jesus raised from the dead. He's basically saying the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead is just a spiritual reality. He says, is to miss the point, to cut the nerve of the social, cultural, and political critique. There's a critique, there's a criticism, there's a judgment there. And he finishes saying this, death is the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. The resurrection does not make a covenant with death, it overthrows it. Death is the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. Because of the promise of resurrection, here's where it is, we don't fear death. Because of the promise of resurrection, we don't fear death. We're not intimidated by the tyrant. The promise of resurrection eliminates the fear of death. Not only that, the promise of resurrection and future judgment empowers us as followers of Jesus to resist oppression and challenge the tyrant because all they can do is kill you. I mean, we're comfortable in, in the West. We don't face tyrants the way they're faced in other parts of the world. But throughout history, followers of Jesus have faced death without fear. Whether it was in Roman Colosseums, whether it was people in the name of Jesus actually perpetuating injustice through torture and murder in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation period, faithful followers of Jesus would stand up against oppression. They would stand up against the tyrant because they did not fear death. And it happens today. We have brothers and sisters in the world today, in countries like China or Iran, where it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus. It's illegal to convert, convert to Christianity. There, it, there was an incident just last week in China, I believe, where there was a church, a physical building, demolished with people inside. And the followers of Jesus do not fear death because we know that one day God will judge. It's the reason why followers of Jesus hid Jews in World War II, and some of them paid the ultimate price for that. Because of the resurrection, we don't fear death. And there's, there's, an, there's a really neat thing. I mean, this is a, a cross-cultural comparison here, so I don't know how legitimate it is. But Sisyphus has to carry a stone up the hill for eternity. He's got to carry the burden. And Albert Camus implies that the burden is the struggle in the face of death. Ultimately, death is what provides the absurdity of humanity. But in the story of Jesus, get this, the stone is rolled away. The stone that would keep him dead. The stone that says death is 
forever is rolled away. And Jesus rises from the dead as a foretaste, as a foreshadowing of the resurrection that comes from all people, comes for all people. For God to make things right, ultimately make things right. Maybe in your life you're carrying a rock. Maybe in your life you face injustice. Maybe in your life you face challenges that they, they drain your energy, they drain your life. Personal, maybe at work, maybe you face racism, maybe you face betrayal by a friend or worse, a spouse. There's a rock that you carry. It's unjust, but there's resurrection. We look forward to resurrection. Maybe you fear death. Here's something about the fear of death. The fear of death robs us of the power to address injustice because we fear death. And death is the last tool of the tyrant. If you fear death, you are unable to respond to the injustice of the world. I mean, at some point you say, well, why bother? Because there's resurrection. No, because as followers of Jesus, we are called to be king, to live out the kingdom. So one day Jesus will make everything right, but we are called to foreshadow that today. And we do that because we don't fear death. We need to allow God's spirit to give us the passion that the resurrection offers to face down and challenge injustice. We need to, uh, to ask him to point out, to show to us where there is injustice that we need to address. And the threat, there is threat because nobody, the unjust systems don't die easily. But we do, there is risk when we ally with God to effect justice. And in our culture, yeah, the, the cost can be low, but in some areas, maybe, maybe there is a death. You challenge injustice in your job, maybe it's the death of your job. If you challenge injustice on social media, there's a reputation risk there that can be devastating. Maybe if you challenge injustice, you might see the death of a relationship. And in some cases, when you challenge injustice, there's actual loss of life. There's a risk to challenge injustice. Maybe you fear judgment. Maybe resurrection isn't good news. Maybe you'd, you'd prefer the, the peace of annihilation rather than one day having to stand before God and answer for the injustice that you've participated in. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that that's taken care of because Jesus died on your behalf. He overcame death, but he also overcame what brings death our wrongdoing, our injustice, our partnership with evil. We partner with evil in all kinds of ways, little bit ways and big ways, but they, it all causes destruction in our own lives and in the lives of other people. And then judgment's bad news. But when you follow Jesus and we walk, walk, we, we, we walk in his steps, following behind him, and we become increasingly Christ-like, the promise is that his death covers the penalty for our participation in justice. 
This is not a, it, it, it's not a get out of jail free card where now all of a sudden you can just do what you want. Not at all, because we pursue Christlikeness. But if, if you don't have that guarantee, if, you don't, if you're not a follower of Jesus and so you face that judgment without his protection, you need to get on board with his purpose for your life and for the world. You need to access his protection from the penalty of injustice. You need to throw in with Jesus and go all in with him and be part of his justice plan for the world, for you and for the world. So I'm going to challenge you to follow him today. And if you've never done this before, it's, a, it's as simple as ABC. A is admit your need. Admit, I have been participating with injustice. I have, I know I have not lived perfectly. I know I've done wrong things. And I don't know what would happen if I were to stand before the judge of the universe. I admit my need for Jesus. B is believe, which is, which is a, it's a statement of trust. I am trusting in Jesus overcoming death and covering my wrongdoing so I can stand blameless before the judge. B is believe. C is commit. Commit your life to him. You can't continue on the old path while claiming to follow Jesus. It's a whole new life. And this is, what, this is how we stand with confidence because we are on the side of the good God of the universe. We are on the side of justice. If this is a decision you are going to make today for the first time, I'm going to encourage you to, to pray with me. I'll pray and just make my words your words. You can repeat them out loud if you can keep up. But pray this prayer of commitment to God. Father in heaven, I thank you that you are good and you love me. I admit my need for you because I've been part of injustice. I've done wrong things even when I know better. I admit my need for Jesus. And I'm choosing to believe, I'm choosing to trust in Jesus' death on my behalf. I'm choosing to trust that he has covered all of my wrongdoing. And I'm choosing to commit my life to you to live the resurrection life, to live the justice life, so I can stand confidently before you when final judgment comes. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. Amen. If this is a decision that you are making today for the first time, please connect with us. This is a spiritual journey that we all walk together. We can't walk it alone. So to help you walk it with us, Go to crossons.live on your computer or whatever and click the follow Jesus button. Give us your contact info and we'll give you next steps for how to walk this new spirit life together. I have um, a comment. Oh, this is a, okay, so there's a question. It's a bit of a tricky one. Are Christians who have died living in heaven right now or waiting for the resurrection? So there isn't a clear answer to that out of scripture, but here's my answer. The answer is yes. We're waiting for the resurrection. So as human beings, we require to fully be ourselves, we require a physical body. When you die, you no longer have one. So you exist sort of as a, as a bodiless spirit. 
how, how can I make this as simple as possible? So God creates the universe, okay? He creates the universe, and when, when he creates the universe, time starts. So there's a timeline. God's in eternity. He's outside of time. Time's accessible to him. He's not limited to time, but, but our timeline starts, and, and we're stuck in that. We can only move forward in time. We can't go backwards. We can't. We're all time travelers, you know, 60 seconds per minute. We're in this timeline. We're stuck in that. When you die, brought back together again in a new glorious resurrection body. So it's both ends. Bodies awaiting resurrection, spirits with the Lord. And at the end of the time, end of time, the, the, the goal isn't for us to live a, 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 um, a bodiless existence in heaven. At the end of time, God's going to bring heaven and earth together and restore all things. And we receive a glorified body the way Jesus did at his resurrection. At his resurrection, he's doing all kinds of things he never did during his life because it's a new kind of body and we receive a new kind of body. So I hope that's not too, like, way out there, but that's sort of my perspective on that. We wait for the resurrection, but when we die, we're present with the Lord immediately. We're going to close the service, but I have some uh, just closing statements. We've talked in the past few weeks that, that justice is a primary human concern, and it continues to be, but justice is also God's primary concern, one of his primary concerns for us, to make things right. For us to be part of God's purpose in this world, we count on resurrection because it eliminates the fear of death. As followers of Jesus, we don't fear death. What's the worst that somebody can do for you? And so when we see injustice, we are called to participate with God in his kingdom, even if it means death. Because death, we don't fear that anymore. Our enemy, our greatest enemy, has been defeated by Jesus. And so we're called to take the risk, to step out, to do what other people aren't willing to do when it comes to calling out injustice and acting against injustice. The ultimate injustice, which is the death of the righteous, the death of the innocent, the ultimate injustice, was conquered when that stone was rolled away. And the ultimate innocent one, the ultimate righteous one, came up out of the grave and guaranteed that as his followers, we will know resurrection life as well. And we will know it completely in the future, but we know it in part now as we encounter God on a daily basis. We are called to be voices against injustice. Too often in the past, as followers of Jesus, we've remained quiet. We are called to be a voice against injustice and to act against injustice, even to the risk of our own life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are just, that you are good, you are a God of love, and because you love, you don't want to tolerate injustice. Because you are good, because you are love, you are patient with human injustice. Because you don't want people to be eternally lost from you. Father, as we await resurrection, as we await in that now and not yet where injustice still seems to reign in so many areas, Father, help us to ally with you, to be, to be your voice, to be your hands and feet in response to injustice, to speak out where we need to, to act where we need to. And Father, we, we're overwhelmed with it, but there are specific areas for, for our church specific areas for each one of us 
that we are supposed to respond to, that we are supposed to take responsibility for. Identify those things to us, Father, and help us to be faithful in addressing those. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Crosslands Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or the Google Play Store so that it comes straight to your device. And to find out more about Crosslands Church, you can visit us at crosslands.ca. Join us next week for another message to help you experience the life with God you've been missing.